Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. Today marks nine days without a House Speaker. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing the 2023 Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm Brendan Buck. Uh, what a mess on the Hill right now. Um, I will confess, I didn't think it could get this bad, but here we are. Uh, Steve Scalise trying to find some way to get 217 votes he needs to become Speaker. Um, as Kevin McCarthy apparently put it this morning, a big hill to climb. Uh, not exactly encouraging words. So we've, we're going to dive into everything that took place in the last week, try to figure out where Steve Scalise goes from here, where the conference goes from here, get, get into whatever the heck it was Kevin McCarthy was, was up to in the last week, uh, and what all this means for a House's ability to govern um, there are some important things going on in the world, and it would be nice if the House of Representatives could get their act together and, and perhaps respond to them. Yeah, I mean, also since we last spoke, uh, Hamas terrorists attacked Israel, killing more than a thousand Israelis, um, and as of today, 25 Americans. Um, now, you know, we're not a foreign policy podcast, but there's certainly a lot of implications here in Congress um, that this move has had. Um, I mean, first and foremost, I think everyone is kind of looking to Congress to, um, you know, pass an aid package. I think that's going to be coming in the coming weeks. Um, we're, I think, you know, completely paralyzed in the House. I mean, they they can't seem to pass a resolution condemning Hamas that has, you know, broad support. So I think that um, is, you know, sort of exacerbating the challenges that we're seeing with this House Speaker's race. Uh, and also kind of brings us back to the powers of McHenry. We talked about this last week, and it's almost a little eerie to be sort of in the situation that we were discussing, um, where, you know, we both kind of felt like post 9-11, uh, this law was 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 passed in order for, you know, a, a potential uh, temporary speaker to continue the work of the House of Representatives in a case of national security or in case of global tensions like we're seeing today. You know, I think we're seeing Democrats also recognizing this challenge. They've been circulating a memo uh, from the Rules Committee to uh, members and staff that really, in their view, crystallizes that the only rule, the only role uh, of the temporary speaker is to elect a new speaker. So, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to what McHenry can and, and can't do. And the situation in Israel, I think, is going to weigh heavily over um what happens in the house over the next few weeks certainly it should increase the the level of urgency um but let's step back here and and kind of recount what's happened in the last few days because it certainly doesn't feel like um anybody is feeling a sense of urgency so there was a conference meeting on wednesday where they did two things uh one of course there was the vote to nominate steve scalise but let's not skip over uh, a vote that I think was was pretty important, and there was an effort to change the rules of the conference about uh, nominating a speaker. Uh, the rules going in are that you only need a simple majority behind closed doors in a secret ballot to become 
the nominee of the conference to be speaker. And that's typically how these things have gone. You know, we, we go in and maybe some people vote for protest candidates, but you've got your hundred and however many votes. And then by the time you get to the floor, everybody kind of comes around and votes for the nominee. Obviously trying to avoid the disaster that took place in January um, with McCarthy having to go through 15 painful rounds, there was an effort to change the rules where not only do you have to win the nomination by a majority, you then have to have what they were calling a validation vote where you could prove in the conference that you have the necessary votes on the floor. That measure on its face makes a lot of sense, like avoid, like get it all done behind closed doors and don't have that problem on the floor. That measure was defeated. I actually think it was good that it was defeated. Um, I think you were just inviting more and more trouble by basically allowing a small number of people to kind of vote four times behind closed doors against the nominee and effectively kill the nominee. I think we have seen already in the last week that there's been enough people come out, uh, or in the last day, I guess, um, enough people coming out and saying they don't want to vote for Scalise right now. Um, people that, he, you know, he may be able to flip eventually, but very easily in a matter of a few hours behind closed doors could have dethroned him um, as the nominee and they basically have to start the election over again. So I'm, I'm glad that they defeated that measure. I think it was sort of misguided or would have had unintended consequences perhaps. Um, and But once that was defeated, it very clearly um, was a good sign for Scalise because Scalise was against that. Um, and so Scalise emerges from the, the conference meeting uh, it was a lot closer than I think a lot of people expected. Um, barely got a majority of the conference voting. Um, and now you have a situation where uh, people are kind of coming out of the woodwork saying that they're not ready to vote for him on the floor. Um, it caught me by surprise a bit. I expected that when he got the nomination that people would want to avoid the debacle um, uh, on the floor again but I guess they just never learned their lesson. So um, now we have a situation where Scalise has a heck of a lot of work to do to, to round up the votes, and he has to figure out whether he wants to go uh, sooner rather than later. Clearly he doesn't have the votes today, um, but um, that's, I think, what they're going to be working on over the next few days. Do you think, Brendan, there's any scenario where they could, you know, maybe not at the 11th hour, but revisit the way in which conference operates to avoid the 15 round? Uh, yeah, I mean, do you, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that it's going to always have to be a simple majority? Um, because I, I mean, when, when the votes are so close, it just seems like there, at least superficially, is an argument to be made that, you know, there should be a mechanism by which conference can come to an agreement before this is all having to play out on the yeah. floor. Yeah, I mean, th honestly, this stuff didn't really work like this previously. I mean, we haven't had a, a close internal speaker's election since I don't know when. So, I mean, this hasn't really happened. Um, it, look, it makes sense to not go to the floor until you have 217 votes, but that's what we're doing now anyway. I just think that that process allowing all of this to, to remain behind closed doors was just actually inviting more people to cause trouble than it was actually going to resolve anything. Um, and, you know, as we've seen, plenty of people now who are would have been willing to, to stop him then and there. And now Scalise is in this, like, odd situation where they could go to the floor, really, at any time they want, 
but they don't have it quite nailed down. Like McCarthy had to go to the floor at a certain time. It was like January 3rd at noon. We are coming in and we're going to go. And now Scalise has some like interesting decisions to make about do you kind of press your luck? Do you kind of dare people not to vote against you on the floor? Um, Or do you kind of keep this going and kind of run a little whip operation for the next however long it takes? It's one of those things where usually the longer things sit out, the worse things get for you. So there's got to be a bit of urgency, but it's clear at this moment, at least right now, that he's well short of, of 217. Yeah. And some of those votes who initially seemed like they were with Scalise have, have been changing or flipping even as, as, the, as we draw farther away from the conference uh, meeting. So, okay, let's get into it. So Scalise secured, what was it, 111 votes in conference? 113, 113. but I guess three of those were delegates that don't actually get to vote on the floor. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, So, you know, we already talked about the pretty uh, steep uphill climb that he has ahead of him to secure 217. Uh, I'm pretty skeptical he's going to be able to pull it off. I mean, McCarthy had a couple of months to do this, and we saw that play out. Um, Scalise has a much shorter time frame uh, to do this. And he can only afford to lose, what, four votes on the floor? Mm-hmm. So so what are we looking at? What's what is the blocks uh, that he has to kind of get on his side to pull this thing off? Well, there's been a lot of people um, come out, say they're not going to vote for him. A lot of people saying they're going to vote for Jordan. But you, this is, a, what makes this so difficult is there's no like real like unifying characteristic about the people who are saying they're opposed to him. They're all over the, you got moderates, you got conservatives, you've got sort of random in the middle people. Um, so it's not like he can just go have a meeting with the freedom caucus and, and win them over and, and be okay. Um, he's got a lot of people he's going to have to, to pick off. Uh, Nancy Mace has put herself in a tough spot where she said she's not going to vote for him because he spoke to a white supremacist meeting 20 years ago. Um, I don't know how you walk that back. If you say like, I can't represent my constituents by supporting that person. Um, Max Miller, Mike Lawler, Carlos Jimenez. These are some of these people are just like McCarthy backers um, who, who said that they, they don't want to vote for Steve Scalise and we can get into the McCarthy stuff. Um, And then you've got, you know, pretty hardened conservatives. You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene saying she's, she's concerned about his health. I'm I'm sure he appreciates that. Thank you for your concern. I'm okay. Um, but it's a, it's a big, long list, and I, I think it w- would take a really long time to get through. Um, you know, I, I, like, let's just cut to the chase here. There have to be some conversations going on in Scalise world about whether this is doable, about whether you can actually get there. And like, I, certainly too early to throw in the towel, and I'm not saying that he can't get there. But I'm saying any sort of sober look at this, um, you have to think there's a decent chance that this is not going to work out. Yeah, I, I thought Lloyd Smucker's comment, um, I guess it was through a tweet, was like an interesting one and encapsulated a lot of the thinking of kind of just a very rank and file, you know, member of Congress who's, you know, been again, been sort of watching this play out and is feeling like as a result of, you know, these eight individuals who've ousted McCarthy, now um, everyone's just kind of moving up the ladder and, you know, everybody's kind of getting a promotion. And I think there's just this sense of frustration. I don't know that it's going to... Uh, materialize and sort of 
you know, squarely behind one candidate or the other. Um, but in this case, you know, he's throwing his weight behind Jordan because he's just frustrated with the system mm-hmm. and how it's played out. I can sort of see that and empathize with that. Yeah, this doesn't feel like a conference that's just like, next person up, leadership, let's keep going. I mean, I think we talked about this back in January with McCarthy. Like, if it wasn't McCarthy, is it necessarily Scalise? Because, like, if you, if you like, are so upset with the direction of leadership, are you just going to want – and, I, I, again, I think it's totally unfair – to Scalise, but I could absolutely see that being a, a prevailing sentiment. Like if we're going to sort of start over here, let's really start over. I mean, you even have like, there's just some, it gets to the, the, the promises that would, that would have to be made and whether this is even a job worth taking. I mean, that's got to be part of the Scalise calculation right now. I mean, every promise that McCarthy made, Scalise is going to have to eat. And he's going to have to make a whole bunch of new promises. I guess George Santos, uh, freshly indicted another 20 times, um, you know, is looking for some protection for his vote uh, for for speaker. Uh, and like, are you really willing to do that? Um, you know, you've got people wanting to, you know, ensure we're going to impeach the president. Like, gosh, that feels like, I mean, maybe he's going to be impeached either way, but like, are you really going to put yourself in a position of having to promise to impeach the president to become speaker? He may have to. I mean, but point is, um, you know, whatever leash Kevin McCarthy had after making all of those promises, the leash is going to be even shorter for Scalise. And perhaps, you know, not to leave off the most important of all here, he's still going to be facing a motion to vacate. Um, just in the same way that McCarthy was facing that with some of these challenging Amazing to me how this is not even being talked about. Like, we got into this situation from the motion to vacate, and, like, everybody just abandoned the idea that they're going to even reform it. I couldn't agree more. Like, I I mean, if I'm coming in as speaker, I mean, there's just no place to negotiate from in in terms of, like, changing these rules. But I I don't understand why anyone um, would want to walk into this position without an agreement that like, Hey guys, we can't do this the same way. Like, right. Like we don't want to be putting ourselves in a position where, um, you know, one sort of fringe person in our, in our conference can, can make us go through this. And we're at the, you know, we're essentially just at their whim. Yeah. I guess Scalise is not in a position to be making any demands at this point. Um, I actually wrote a piece for, um, it's on, uh, msnbc.com about how, uh, I think the only person who probably could have, uh, changed the motion to vacate was Jordan. Cause he's the person who has like the credibility with the conservatives who would never allow that change. Um, I had actually sort of floated while I don't think Jordan would be a great speaker. Um, he's probably the only person who could kind of do this grand bargain with between conservatives and moderates, conservatives get Jim Jordan to be the Speaker of the House. Moderates get the rule change so that the Speaker has the freedom to be able to do bipartisan deals when he needs to. Um, I don't know that Jim Jordan is capable of doing bipartisan deals, um, but it's just funny to me that um, everybody was so angry about this motion to vacate, and now like that has just completely disappeared from the conversation. Yeah, it's completely disappeared, and both of them have already agreed that or at least acknowledged that we're going to just have to go right back to a CR, which is, you know, sort of comical in terms of that's the big was the big sticking point of how one of the reasons we got here in the first place. 
Yeah, and apparently conservatives now okay with that. Jim Jordan had a plan that we were gonna we're just gonna do another CR. I'm like, sounds great. It, it's hard to keep up with some of the the positions. Moving goalposts. Yeah. Here. I mean, I also like driving me crazy a little bit here. Um, you know, Steve Scalise was the nominee chosen by the conference, and a lot of these people who are were theoretically very upset about what Matt Gates did. Um, overruling the will of the conference are now going to jump right in themselves and block the nominee from the conference. Um, a bit hypocritical, a bit um, inconsistent, but I guess I, I shouldn't really expect any better at this point. So let's talk a little bit about what Scalise is able to promise some of these members. I mean, we talked about, you know, George Santos potentially looking for some protections. I mean, we always have, you know, committee uh, positions and slots that he can kind of give out, promise some legislation moving. I mean, what are some of the other deals that um, obviously he's looking at a very disparate cast of characters that he's going to have to get on his side. So he's going to have to be considering and I'm sure, you know, trying to think through what he can offer these folks to, and, and, you know, maybe some of them will never be happy. Um, you know, they just, they just want to go on, on television and, and be against whoever the, the nominee is. So maybe there's nothing there. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what it is that he could potentially offer, but I will say the thing that seems to be the biggest holdup for him with the conservatives is there's the sense that he would do a, he would be a continuation of what McCarthy was doing to fund the government, which they all feared was heading towards a big omnibus at the end of the year. Uh, and it feels like he's going to have to lay out some type of path ahead to fund the government in a way that, that satisfies them. But this, I will just say is not nothing that they would be happy with is realistic. And that is right. that's what got Kevin McCarthy, you know, caught up. It is what is going to vex whoever the speaker is, um, and and speakers to come. As long as this is a Republican majority, that they're going to have to make demands, or they're going to have to accede to demands on um, how to fund the government that they just can't deliver on. It's just I'm sorry, like you're 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 never going to be able to fund the government in a way that gets Thomas Massey to vote for it, um, you know, in a, in a long term way um, that is also going to be passed by Chuck Schumer and also going to be signed um, by by Joe Biden. Like, you know, I'm not talking about a short term CR. I'm talking about like the long term funding of the government is those those things just aren't going to come together. Um, so I don't know what, what I mean, this feels bigger than, you know, committee slots, but like in some ways he has less to offer than McCarthy, you know, McCarthy got there by offering, uh, Chip rules Roy committee. and Massey and folks like slots on the rules more committee. slots to rules committee. <laughs> I've heard so. that floated. <laughs> I guess so. But like, what's he going to do? Like take off Roy and put somebody else. I mean, that's not going to help. Oh, we're going to add three more. I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Um, well, let's follow this to its uh, logical conclusion. So say, you know, Scalise takes a little bit more time to uh, rally his supporters uh, and sort of brings this to the floor there. He's nominated on the floor to be speaker. Um, let's hypothetically say he is unable to reach 217. Um, you know, 
Jeffries has has floated a bipartisan coalition style governing. Um, I think we all uh, understand that that's not a realistic outcome. Um, but, you know, looking at sort of talking through our other options, do we have a repeat of this round after round of uh, voting for Scalise? Uh, I could certainly, you know, see them adjourning and going back to conference and coming up with, you know, this was kind of my prediction last week, kind of a, a third person, maybe a McHenry to sort of step in. Um, maybe it's just a, uh, an, a, they agree that it's sort of a temporary solution and they have McHenry uh, come in as speaker, maybe with some sort of understanding that he's not going to be um, speaker long term, but he's going to kind of be em- empowered, uh, at least with a gavel to get the you know people's business done that needs to be done so we don't have a government shutdown with uh, no speaker. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, before we write off Scalise, I mean, the, I think one of the things that you know he won't necessarily go to the floor certain he's going to lose. I don't. I don't think that he is um, wants to put himself or put the conference through that. I mean, he may have to go if it's close. Like, but the thing that he has going for him is he's got a big operation. He's a former whip. Like, he knows how to talk to members and understand where, where people at. I remember in January when McCarthy lost twenty one, they were sort of surprised by how big that number was. Um, and I don't think Scalise is going to necessarily um, fall into that same trap. Like, you know, being on the floor and being like, I, I did, I don't know what I'm going to do now. And it, it, in some ways it's to his advantage that he doesn't have to rush to the floor. I and mean, some of those people back in January could kind of hold out and hold out. And now Scalise can, uh, can hold out himself. Um, but it's very possible that he goes to the floor and loses. And the question is, um, you know, does he go to the floor and lose by just a few votes and he can flip people and, and try to end the charade? I mean, look, this is an absolute embarrassment once again. And I would think that with all the things going on in the world, with everything that the House went through last week, people would stop and be like, okay, let's get a little more serious. But they just never learn lessons. They're just not built that way. No, the I games mean, continue. So I just don't have a whole lot of confidence at, yeah. that they're going to like come to their senses and say like this is um, this is not you know helpful for anybody. But I, to your point, if Steve Scalise can't get 217 votes, I don't know that anybody can get 217 votes. Like I, maybe there are people who can get more votes than Steve Scalise, but I just don't know who in the world could get. This is just not a conference that is aligned enough around anything you know any and especially now to the point where this is just completely broken open like if steve scalise is defeated here this conference is just going to crack open into and just be into a million pieces and everybody's just going to be a free agent nobody has any allegiance to the team um and you know we could be without our an ability to really have a real speaker for a long time unless there's a uh, resurgence of mccarthy unless there's a resurgence of mccarthy which we should get into um but yeah i, I think the idea that that patrick McHenry ends up becoming sort of caretaker for a period of time is not crazy 
Um, and maybe it doesn't require voting him as speaker. I'll be honest, I, I don't know what the procedure would be for empowering him to do more things. I don't know if there really needs to be a procedure. We're like in totally unprecedented times and um, they could just start moving bills and set new precedent. Um, so I think that's that's very possible. And speaking of McCarthy, um, I mean, we we saw, you know, some members calling for him to be reinstated as speaker throughout this process of Scalise and Jordan. And McCarthy himself, while not, you know, outright saying that he was a candidate and wanted people to consider him and, you know, he wasn't. But thank asked, you for bringing it up. <laughs> yeah, he, he was he was honored to be considered, uh, certainly leaving, uh, you know, maybe a window open to that possibility. Yeah, I mean. A lot of people asking a lot of like, what is he doing? I mean, not only like leaving himself open, but McCarthy just being everywhere in the media. He held a like a press conference in the Rayburn room, which is sort of controlled by the speaker. Um, you know, it was kind of like, huh, okay, what's what's like? This is not somebody who's just been defeated as speaker and is, is quietly going away. And then yeah, just kind of like reminding everybody that he got ninety six percent of the vote. So I mean, I think there's probably two, th one of two things, or maybe two things, both going on. Either one, he does think that he could still be speaker and wanted to at least like leave out the hope that people will change their mind or come back around to him. And or or two, and this is what I think a lot of people are concluding is he's trying to screw with Scalise. Um, trying to get his members to not support Scalise, to keep his numbers low. And we've talked in the past about this tension that's existed between the two of them. And I've always said, I think it's a little overstated. Um, but it's hard not to look at what McCarthy had been doing in the last week and not think that it probably did hurt Scalise. Um, kind of holding back and, and leaving out hope for his guys. Because um, a lot of the people, you know, despite that rivalry, a lot of McCarthy people are probably also kind of Scalise people um, as well. Uh, you know, he said he supports him now, but you know, making comments this morning, like, yeah, Steve's got an uphill um, climb ahead of him. It reminds me a lot, and this gets back to I think where some of the tension was um, back in January when McCarthy was struggling to get the votes. There was a sense among some McCarthy folks, allies, I'll say, that Scalise didn't do enough to be there for McCarthy. And they sort of remember that. And there was some comment that Scalise made back then, and I won't get it exactly right, but basically like, yeah, Kevin's going to have to like figure this out. Basically saying, you're, you're on your own, man. And McCarthy... Uh, this week has made almost the exact same comments. Yeah, you know, Steve's going to have to go talk to those guys. That's tough. Um, feels very much like he's just kind of leaving them out there floating. Yeah, if, it feels it feels personal and and certainly not like looking at the policies of Scalise and McCarthy. Like there's not, you know, they're not very disparate when you consider, um, you know, kind of the speakers that they would be and the policies that they've supported. Um, okay, I have a topic that I want to talk to you about, Brendan, because you are a former leadership staffer and mostly because I'm curious about this. Um, something that they, um, something that the members of conference did at the uh, meetings earlier this week is they took everyone's cell phones away. And they put them in these like really uncoordinated, confusing yellow bags. I don't know their system, but it looked like just a total, total mess. Um, but that was, of course, to prevent leaking from conference meetings. I, it's been interesting. You know, McCarthy's kind of handled press differently. He's been a little bit more um, out front, doing a lot of like walk and talks and 
you know, just really sort of putting it all out there, which has helped him, I think, uh, sort of drives in particular around the debt ceiling negotiations. Like he was very forward leaning, sort of running the conversation. But it's it, that even goes so far into sort of the conference meetings like I'll see reporters tweeting out photos of the powerpoints that they're showing it's like I kind of feel like a couple of members are in there with their phones like on record and they've just have them like out or like they're even maybe on the phone with someone and it's on speakerphone just in terms of like the the speed with which the information is disseminated to my Twitter feed um so I certainly understand like why they want to take these phones and like have some time for the conference to just you know, you know, sort of stop all the leaking. But I guess I'm curious, like, how did you guys deal with this? Did you have this issue? Were people just like not as online? Uh, well, I would say the dam is definitely broken on this. Like, it feels like members just like don't care. Like, they there are enough of them who it seems like are um, getting a chit with a reporter or or something. Um, what I appreciated about it is that at least there's a recognition now that it is the members doing it. Uh, whenever there were leaks in the past, there was always like, oh, it's staff, we need to get the staff out of here. It was never the staff who was leaking stuff. It was always the members who were doing it. Um, and so I'm glad they figured that out. Um, it was funny to see them <clears throat> putting phones in little yellow bags. And, um, you know, we have procedures for these things. There's, uh, you know, classified briefings and stuff all the time where you can't bring bring phones in. Um, but yeah, like it, it definitely feels like a different vibe. Not all conference meetings are that interesting. <laughs> um, but we seem to have had so many chaotic things going on in the house now that what's being said in there is actually, um, of much greater interest to people, but reporters have figured this out. And like, I guess there's no shame in this anymore. You know, plenty of members complain about it for sure. Um, but it doesn't, you know, there's 200 of them and all it takes is a couple. Um, so it, I think it's bad um, in there's this, you know, everybody likes transparency. Everybody thinks sunshine is great. Not being able to have a meeting without it being leaked out just is not very constructive for, for getting things done. Um, you know, I, I always remind people that even in schoolhouse rock, there's a section of it where it talks about how people are behind closed doors um, making decisions because that's just kind of the way things get done easier. Um, and it, it, you know, I don't think this is on, on the list of problems house Republicans have. This is not like, <laughs> not a top, not, <laughs> not a top, top not a top problem, <laughs> but it's not helpful either. Yeah. Um, no, that's certainly true. I think the, the top problems that we're facing are what, 36 days until we run out of funding. Um, and we know that an Israel aid package is going to be coming to Congress soon. I mean, we just, those are things that we know are coming and, um, I'm still kind of in the, you know, if we're going to go back to our predictions, I'm still kind of in the camp that, um, you know, I'm not counting Scalise out, but I am very skeptical. And, and it's not personal to Scalise. I, I just don't think any candidate at this point is going to be able to get 217 either. So I think, um, you know, rather than dragging it out on the House floor, they will go back to conference and they will put forward either a temporary McHenry or an empowered McHenry um, to kind of get get through kind of, I don't know, some of these most pressing imminent challenges facing Congress. Yeah, <clears throat> I guess last week we made our predictions. You said caretaker McHenry speaker, which is looking pretty good right now. I said, I think Scalise. Uh, also not looking bad Which is not right looking now. bad right now. I mean, kind of looking bad, but like still <laughs> this, is, this story has not yet been told. Um, but yeah, the McHenry thing is is like, 
could potentially kind of become the ball game here. Um, I do think that once you start moving legislation, you know, there's effectively <clears throat> no limit on it. Like, I don't know what the principle is where, <clears throat> or the, the, you know, the subjective uh, reading you can make on like why this is emergency and this isn't like once they start moving bills like you might as well just kind of carry on the business of the house certainly feels possible that he needs to stay in this role until they fund the government in 36 days like there's a real possibility that we are into next week and no closer to having a speaker um and you know th then we're just a couple weeks away um potentially from from needing to fund the government i think it's very possible that that he does this but this just gets back to my whole thing last week about this law. I mean, the reason McHenry is the speaker pro tem is from a continuation of government law from 2003 that is supposed to allow the House to function in case of an emergency. Um, maybe the war in Israel isn't the emergency they had in mind, but it kind of feels like it. Like, why have this law where you are theoretically empowering somebody to be speaker if they don't actually have any power to do anything. I mean, what's the point? What, why, why, why do this? I mean, if, it, if their entire responsibility is just holding a speaker election, the clerk of the house could do that. Um, and I get that they're interpreting it the way that the law, you know, may be written and it's not totally clear and they're taking the more cautious view of it. Um, but I, I, I get a sense. there's room to well, sort of change the precedent? We've, there is no precedent. I mean, we can make precedent um, that if there's a vacancy in the speakership, uh, and speaker feels like they speaker pro temp feels like they need to do something. He could do something, um, and I certainly think keeping the government open or something so clearly tied to our national security um, is is ripe for for jumping in. So um, you know, if we don't get a speaker soon, it would not surprise me at all if McHenry starts moving legislation. And again, I don't know if he need, they even need to do anything. Like I don't know if they need to have a vote to empower him. I would argue he can just do it. Um, I'm sure there will be some people out, rules experts out there who may may disagree with that. Um, but again, we've never done this before. Um, but that could end up being the situation, whether McCarthy, or excuse me, whether McHenry has enough um, support within the conference to actually become a more longer term speaker, I think is something we'll need to explore. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I'm sure there's lots of different views on him. I would just say he'd be a great speaker. Uh, you know, he's the speaker, you know, we need, I don't know if he's the speaker we deserve. I don't, I don't, I think we probably need, we don't, we don't deserve someone that level headed. Um, but he would be uh, a very steady hand, uh, atop the house for sure. Uh, well, why don't we end it there? I couldn't agree more. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining this week's episode of Control. Uh, we will be back soon and obviously closely following all of the developments in the house. And so we hope you can join us. Yep, our story continues. We'll, we'll talk to you guys soon. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.